So it's Labor Day weekend. It's the change of seasons. And I just heard from some students who Tuesday will be having their last day of summer, which means that Wednesday, their normal year-long life begins. And so maybe that applies to some of you. Maybe some of you, uh, like at our household, have spent some time this past weekend watching college football season. Yep, college football is here. There we go. So in college football season, there are stadiums of people, and, and in professional football as well. These people do not gather there just to watch the huddle, right? We gather because we want to watch the play. They huddle up and then they go out and, and make plays. So we might think of Sunday morning that way. Sunday morning is kind of like a big huddle up or team meeting for the people of God. And today, we're going to talk about what we do the rest of the week. So you're going to be doing something, whether you might be hearing the word work and you think, I'm not sure if that applies to me because I don't get paid for anything I do. But you do something. Maybe you study. Maybe you take care of the family. Maybe you take care of uh, uh, the household. Maybe you're an empty nester who's wondering, what am I going to do now that I'm an empty nester? So we want to bring a highlight to the fact that who we are on Sundays as the people of God is who we are the rest of the week. So you actually have a paper clip there on your bulletin that is not by accident because we want to make this connection between who we are on Sunday and, and who God is calling us to be and, and kind of pouring himself and his truth and his love into us so that we can go out and be the church scattered. So this thing that you're holding, I want to now talk about work for a second. It was designed by someone over 100 years ago. In fact, about the same decade as the U.S. Uh, made Labor Day in the 1890s, there was a young Norwegian patent um, clerk who saw that these there were more and more papers piling up and that people were designing different kinds of little wire devices to hold these papers together. So it occurred to him that these were very useful and he got the patent on it. His name was Johan Valer. Now he described this little item as a piece of wire bent so that the end parts of the wire lie side by side in contrary directions. Does that kind of fit? Evidently, that could be interpreted so many different ways. There were paper clips that had a little pointy part because it seemed easier to get the pointy part over the papers, but it turns out that kind of rips your papers. There were paper clips that had a flat end because, you know, paper is flat, and so those would line up better. There were all different, there's a paper clip that looks like an owl. It sort of has two little eyes. You might have seen some of these different kinds of paper clips. But the general concept of this paper clip is such a beautiful design that it sort of won the day. So how is it that God created someone who could kind of create this little item that it's ubiquitous? In other words, like it's everywhere. It's been this way for a hundred years. And I was thinking, well, now a lot of companies are going paperless. So I'm not sure if this whole analogy is going to work. But on the other hand, when you send an email and you want to put an attachment, you click on the paperclip. So we have a longing, I think, to have our work make a difference 
in, in huge ways and in small ways. And we're going to take a look at how God invites us into that today. Please pray with me. Mighty God, I thank you um, for the gift of work that you designed us to be people who oversee your good creation, who tend and till, who create culture. Lord, I thank you for all those um, gathered here, for all the different ways that we might be your people on Tuesday, whether as students, whether celebrating the end of summer, as artists or accountants or uh, empty nest moms wondering what comes next. Lord, I ask that you might use this time of reflection and study um, to empower us to be your scattered church. So thank you for gathering us in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to take a look at two scriptures today. And uh, as we read together, the first one is a psalm. It's Psalm 90. And Psalm 90 starts with this kind of broad view of God and reminds us that with God a thousand years are like a day, and that we, in comparison, have sort of fleeting lives. Like, if we're fortunate, we get maybe 70 or 80 years. It actually says that in the psalm. Like, our 70 or 80 years, if we have the life strength. In this kind of contrast, we see this cry that we have of the mortal, us mortal human beings, for the eternal. We want to connect like our daily life to God's eternal purposes. It's the cry of the worker in a perishable world for the perpetuity of our work. And then in the last section, the very last couple of verses, it says, establish the work of our hands. Connect our work to your work. Link our mortality to your immortality, God. Our swiftly passing days to your never-ending days. It says it a couple times, the word establish. Some Bibles translate this prosper, and I think we've wrongly thought that means God help us make money. It's not that. It's God help us make a difference. Help our lives count for something because they're connected to your life. I was on this amazingly inspirational trip to Hawaii about a month ago. Like, what's not to love about going to Hawaii? Um, like the sunsets, the ocean. You usually go there for vacation. But my inspiration was not all about vacation and inspiration. I was there for 48 hours to accompany my dad to the memorial service of his only brother. My dad grew up in Hawaii. His dad was a pineapple chemist, and his brother, my uncle, also spent his life in the pineapple industry. And I remember as a young child having the best pineapple ever, standing out in the field, feet in the dirt, and he sliced, like with a machete, sliced open this pineapple and handed it to me at the end of the machete. It's like, oh my gosh, it was warm and juicy, unbelievable. And at his memorial service, this is what we heard over and over again that this man had given his life, not just to growing great pineapple, but to really lifting up people in, in the ways that God was calling them. There were five different speakers, and there were five different nationalities represented. My dad and my sister and I were in the front row on one side, and the rest of the family was on the other side, and I'm pretty sure we were the only Caucasian people in the whole congregation. And we're in Hawaii. If you're white, you're called a haole. So we're the Howleys, and the rest of the folks were Filipino, Japanese, African-American, and each speaker was a different nationality. And 
I felt so impressed to know that what my uncle had said and done in each of these people's lives. One in particular struck me. It was a guy who said that he was a young management trainee in a little group, and it was my uncle who required all the trainees to do every job on the plantation. They had to be out there planting, they had to be picking, they had to be pruning, they had to pack the pineapple into those wonderful boxes that they could get delivered, they had to drive the truck. And he talked about how he grew in empathy for each one of those jobs because my uncle essentially required that they do that. And then it came time for someone to be recommended to become a plantation manager. And my uncle recommended this younger man, and the younger guy got the job. I later found out at breakfast the next day from his family that that was really hard on my uncle because he wanted that job. He eventually did become a plantation manager. And we heard over and over from different people how he acknowledged who they were and invited them to take a next step into church, into the community, into a service organization. And I just came away thinking, now here's somebody who lived a good life. Like, how did he do it? So then we left the big service and we in Hawaii, evidently, I didn't know, you have dinner in celebration of someone's life. There's like a big dining hall right there on the um, Funeral prop, funeral uh, property. The uh, what do you call it? The not the graveyard. You know where the tombstones are. There was a dining hall. Okay, so we cross over and we go to the dining hall, and there's 200 people now telling stories about my uncle. And so this gal came up to me, and she said, I want you to know that your uncle was a greeter at my church every Sunday. And when I was a little kid, he knew my name. And when I was a teenager, I only knew to say the the only good thing, in her opinion at that time about church, was seeing my Uncle Roger, because he would give her a big smile and call her by name. And she said, when I started to get into trouble as a young adult, I felt really discouraged in life. I dropped out of church. I only came on Christmas and Easter. But your uncle was there at the door, and he knew my name. And she started to cry that just this made a difference in her life. So it reminded me that his life was established in God. It, it wasn't a fleeting thing. It was reality for him to be the person God called him to be, whether it was on Tuesday at 10 or on Sunday morning. So we long to connect our lives, our everyday lives, to God's purposes. And God says it's possible God has established, it says in Deuteronomy that he's established us as a royal people, God's own people, a holy people. In the New Testament, it calls us a royal priesthood. We are connected to God in Christ. So then in Colossians, it tells us how do we build on this connection. In Colossians 3.17, which is printed in your bulletin, it says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus. So how do we do that? If you look earlier in this Colossians passage, it says you are God's chosen people, these ones he's established. And he says put on kind of the clothing. I think of, like for me, sometimes when you're standing up here, you know, you have to wear the right thing. I'm holding a handheld. I don't need a belt. There's a lot of details about what we wear every day to work. God tells us this. Put on these this kind of clothing, compassion and kindness and humility and patience. 
And then forgive others as you've been forgiven. And over it all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Like those are the instructions that come. And then like put on these clothes and then whatever you do in word or in deed, do it in the name of Jesus. So uh, last week, my husband had the chance to spend a day fly fishing. This is one of his great loves. And he and two other guys were out on the river. They spent a lot of time fishing, and they got hungry. So on the way home, they decided they're going to stop at Safeway and get some sandwiches. And the one guy uh, goes to, is kind of in front of the line. They've got, he's carrying all the sandwiches, and he gets to the front, and he says, hey, don't worry, Tyler, I'll get this. And my husband, Tyler, says, no, 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 let's split it. And he said, no, 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 let me buy. And you know how that can go back and forth? Well, the Safeway checker intervenes in that moment. She looks at my husband and said, hey, buddy, he wants to bless you. He wants to buy your lunch. Let him. And Tyler was like, oh, I mean, he says to the checker, you mean I should just say thank you? And she says, yes, just say thank you and let him buy your lunch. And here I am telling you this story. Why? Because she was connecting her Sunday self to her work as a checker. She's kind of giving advice to these people in line. Imagine how many people she might affect in a day when she's working there as a checker. So I don't know where you're going to be on Tuesday, but we're going to kind of dive into helping you think about how God might be thinking about your Tuesdays. And there's some other speakers who are going to help us um, get through our sermon today. So we're going to look at how God's word has come alive in the life of Bill Brammer. Bill, come on down. So uh, yeah, give Bill a round of applause. There we go. Um, let me tell you just a little bit about Bill. Bill is now employed here at Bethany as our executive director, and that means that he has responsibility of um, overseeing our multi-site locations, and just in the past year, three of them have changed locations, which means he's had to help negotiate all of that. He also oversees our whole business office, and we've changed to a new chart of accounts, so you accountants out there know that that's a huge project, and it's going to help Bethany to be sustainable for decades to come, and then he's the one who's been our staff manager of the Community Life Center. So Bill's been busy this past year at Bethany, and he was busy well before Bethany. So we're going to hear some about that. Yeah, Thank you, Kendi. Uh, it's interesting to be here talking to you kind of, um, I come from industry. I've been at the church about four years. I'm an electrical engineer by education. My kids say, you don't need to say that because you're wearing black jeans. And I'm like... <laughs> Whenever I wear these, they go, are you going to write some code today? Like, is that going on? So, but I did some seriously, somebody told me, seriously geeky things uh, as an engineer for about five, five years. And then I moved into high-tech sales, which is, was this huge transition. Now, you don't just go into high-tech sales. It's not just buying lunch. You have to know what you're talking about. I was selling embedded microprocessor design tools to people. But there was such an arrogance from me in that because I thought I knew better than them what they needed. And they really didn't want to hear that from me. They really wanted me to listen to them and listen to their needs. And so huge transition to move into that space. From there, I went into business and kind of the business side of things, business re-engineering. My wife and I started a business where we got involved with both startups and large corporations in multiple industries. So I'm just fascinated by the world of work and what all people do out there. There's so much going on. I tend to, um, 
I really love technology because that's my roots and the things that they do. I don't know if you know this, but when you walk into a large store and you're trying to go get batteries, there's software that tells them where to put other things. And when you're like, ooh, pretzels, it's because of that software that they put these things in your paths path based on your demographics. And maybe there's a, I sometimes think about the ethics of that, but then I, I'm just fascinated by the, the math of it all. It's like, oh my gosh, people are sitting around thinking about this stuff and building these maps and selling this software and people are using it. It's just a crazy world out there. One thing I get really excited about is um, how it's distributed, like you young people don't realize that computers aren't that, they haven't been around that long. I mean, we, the older people, people my age, we didn't grow up with computers. We walked up to a window with a deck of cards to try to get a, something out, and you all have computers. I worked for a company that went out of business because they ignored the PC. They said, why would anybody want a PC in their house or a computer in their house? It's like everybody wants one, and in fact, they want three or four of them. So it, what's happened in terms of just blood pressure monitors, diabetes pumps, all these things that have provided a certain amount of freedom to us in the technology space is really why I love it. Photography is one of my favorite. Mostly right now I'm trying to, I've got a sales cycle going at home with my wife Elaine uh, to buy this new camera. And it's, it's this you know fancy new camera and the cool thing about the photography business is that you'll see these people, you see them on Facebook, they're starting photography businesses. Maybe they always dreamed of being a wedding photographer. They wanted to be a portrait photographer, a family photographer. You see them out there doing that, and they're able to do that now because it's affordable. It's distributed. It used to be for the few that could afford it, and so I love the fact that how that changes, and it really changes our whole business world and our whole uh, the ph photography world and the business of photography and people's opportunity. So that's uh, one of my favorite things. I want to talk about uh, kind of three things. that we, We've been looking at faith and work uh, as a congregation for about three years. We've had about 50 people go through a nine-month intensive program around faith and work. And one of the lenses that we look at is there's three different lenses, heart, community, and world. So in the heart space, this is really our own individual, like how do we react to things at work? Um, it, really, it really ends up being a little bit about our identity, and there's a lot of input to assimilate. Performance reviews, very anxiety-producing in the work world. How big's my office? Who's going to lunch with who? Did I copy the right person on the email? All the politics that start coming into our job, and we start kind of playing this game that isn't really about our identity in Christ, and we start finding our identity in these other things. The gospel can come in and help us with that heart, those heart matters that, that uh, come into our kind of our brain and start uh, start informing how we react to these things. The other one is kind of in this, I call it the annoying space. There's, um, and, and they probably shouldn't be, these things that are annoying. So I'm in a meeting and somebody says something, and then right down the row, somebody else says the exact same thing. And I'm like, did, did that just happen? Like, were you listening to that person? And all these ugly things kind of start coming out. You look over and 
look at your colleague and go, did you hear that? Or maybe you talk about that person in the hall. Or during the meeting, you start checking out. You get on Facebook, do a couple likes, send a couple emails. You just sink down in your seat, and you're out. Like, I, I don't want to do that. So our reaction to these things is really our own heart issue and how we step into that world of work. So this faith and work kind of study that we're doing helps people through that. Um, the, if I um, think about this recent Gallup poll that 70% of people at work are disengaged, that's a really sad testimony to what's going on at work. It doesn't have to be that way. Maybe we don't like our job and we're called to it right now and we can just step into that in a new way. And that's where then the community and relationships start coming into play. So as we start to change in our heart, then those relationships among the small team at work, or maybe it's a little bit larger team, but we start affecting those people around us in that community. Um, maybe it's back to how we react when somebody else gets a promotion and you're like, I don't, I don't, why did they promote that person? Like, that doesn't make any sense. I'm better than that. And so, do you decide to lean into that? Or, and say, hey, I'm going to help this person, I'm going to help this team be good, or I'm going to check out and start undermining everything they're going to try to do. So how we react really affects that community and those relationships at work, and it matters, our reaction. And as Christians, we have the gospel that can step into that, and it's beyond ethics and evangelism, which is really where I planted um, any, any kind of faith at work was about ethics and evangelism for me. It's much bigger than that. Ethics and evangelism, good stuff. But it's beyond that in terms of what the gospel can do in the workplace. Uh, then the world, that, and I would say the society around us. My, my biggest trap here is that I want to be affecting the world now. And Honestly, it's kind of arrogant of me to think that, that I'm doing that. Uh, the, this is a long run. Things, Kendi's example of the cashier, like she told me that story and I'm like, I'll tell my kids that story. They, they might tell somebody else that story and who knows, like these things are multi-generational. Who knows where that story will travel and affect somebody's behavior when they had a view of a cashier thinking maybe that's not even that cool of a job and it's like it is like they're speaking into Tyler's life and saying hey pay attention to the gift you're trying to get from this person and so these multi-generational to think of this as multi-generational is really important you know, one benefit of having gotten a little bit older is people have come back to me and said do you remember when you said and I don't I don't remember it <laughs> and and they said and they're like it made this huge difference they started a business or they did this or they did that unbelievable the seeds that we plant day to day tiny things matter and then they go on for generations so I would just encourage you I I don't again I if you look at the Gates Foundation you go well they're changing the world now right uh, they're trying to get rid of malaria but that effect two generations from now will be much bigger than it is today and we have to think of our work as that it really matters what we do today and where it goes uh, in the long run. It's a long run, it's not a sprint. Um, 
work matters is the really the bottom line to this whole thing for me. It's like sometimes it's like li we're living for the weekend, and it's like, no, what Kendi said about this is the huddle, and then we go out there in our work, and how what we do out there matters. How the gospel enters into that world matters. And if I, I've mentioned this faith and work program that we've had, we're going to continue to do that so that people can see the gospel in a larger way than they ever have before and not just think of it as I have as ethics and evangelism. I think of it a little bit like I'll, I'll come back to my camera. This thing is 45 megapixels, nine shots a second. You can zoom in and see the eyelashes on your subject. And it'd be like I took that powerful camera and put it down and used it as a doorstop. The gospel's way bigger than when we think about, oh, should I share my faith at work? Should I invite somebody to Easter? Should I put a Bible on my desk and hope somebody notices? It's way bigger than that at work, and I'm excited about where that can go. Um, we have programs. I'm going to invite Katie Stewart. She's been just a godsend to us in terms of coming alongside in the conversation around faith and work. She's holds us accountable, and she's from industry, and she'll share a little bit more of that. And she's like, uh, where are you guys? Let's, you know, let's go. And, uh, and just the energy, momentum, all the things that she's created for us has been a godsend, so glad to have her up here. And she's going to share a little bit with you about uh, her, about calling and how she feels about that. Well, hello, everybody, and thank you for that introduction, Bill. Um, I mean, it's nice to know that maybe some of the things that I have been involved with here at Bethany have had an impact. Um, as Bill mentioned, I've had over ten, or two years to be involved in this heart community world um, conversation, and I enrolled in the uh, faith and work program that Bethany offers a couple of years ago uh, with the soul, in, well, two soul intents. One is I was new to Seattle and didn't know anybody, so I needed to make new friends quickly, and uh, the other was to discern where God wanted me to be professionally, as it seemed inconceivable to me that it could possibly be where I found myself in that moment. So on uh, completion of the program, I fell back into old habits at work pretty easily. I was aware of the things that I had learned, but I didn't allow them to penetrate my heart. Um, and I allowed a cultural view of what being a businesswoman looks like to really drive me. So how do I see God's calling in my work? To be perfectly honest, most days, I don't. I have uh, been uh, working as a salesperson from home for the last 10 years, and when I'm stuck in conference calls with a thousand administrative tasks piling up or traveling to visit our clients and missing out on life at home, I often just can't wait for the week to be over. It wasn't until recently, um, after attending a week-long faith and work uh, conference in New Jersey with Bill and a number of our pastors here at Bethany, that my perspective was finally shifted. I started to look critically at what motivates me in my work, money, prestige, power, control, security, and I began to recognize in a more positive light how well aligned my gifting is for the job I'm in right now. 
I began to see that I have a unique understanding for numbers and contracts. I noticed my ability to unpack complex problems in mutually beneficial and cost-effective ways and how to draw upon the expertise of others to resolve them. I noticed that my customers trust me, that my colleagues confide in me. When I'm at my best, people seem to feel listened to and that they matter and that that increases their own productivity. I saw that our company is uniquely structured to provide well-paying employment for those with challenging life circumstances who a typical nine to five job just wouldn't work for. And I reconsidered the work we do as a company, which takes many forms, but is essentially bringing uh, safe products to market, products like pacemakers and late stage cancer therapies, over-the-counter pain medications and latex gloves for surgeries. And then I realized that our work is actually benefiting the entire world, that my small part in what often feels like mundane daily life is bringing actual life to others. And then, despite my discontent and complaints, however unfair I think things may be, or however poorly I respond to the stress and people around me, I saw with clarity that I have been called by God to shine the light of his love and restoration into this broken world precisely where I am. When you take pause to look at your own work within this heart community world framework, you can't help but look at the work of those around you in a new lens as well. The person who creates recycling is actually facilitating our own care of creation and helping to keep this planet beautiful. Your friends, or perhaps this is you, who at Tuesday at 10 may find themselves potty training, are in fact, or have in fact been called to shape the lives of our next generation. The contractors who live faithfully and build the homes we live in, providing us with shelter and a place to invite others into, and the architects who design them to make sure they are aesthetically pleasing and structurally sound. The educators who study tirelessly to unpack complex things in ways that we can understand them, and the baristas who make our coffee just right to bring us a moment of enjoyment within a hectic day the farmers who lived humble lives but devote them to feeding the world, and the merchant marines, pilots, train workers, truck drivers, and a million other people who deliver amenities to every corner of the globe, the artists who create beautiful things that move us, inspire us, and we can learn from, and the sales associate who thoughtfully directs them to the instruments they need to create their art the engineers, IT people, project managers who are imagining developing and building all the equipment and systems that, that make these things possible, the accountants, financiers who build plans, create policies, crunch numbers, and figure out how to pay for all this stuff, our elected officials who create structure and provide avenues for us to receive essential services, our cops, military, firemen who literally risk their lives to protect us, the healthcare workers who care for us and comfort us, and of course the pastors who shepherd us along the way. And then you take a step back and you think, how amazing is our God that in his perfectly vast imagination, he created every single one of us to contribute to his magnificent plan in our own small and very specific way, that he filled his gathered church with a wildly diverse, but intricately connected community of people who he scatters to infiltrate the world and cultivate all the systems that make it run so that it might flourish.
We are so busy trying to search for, plan, create, and control our calling. We are missing where he has us now. We are missing that he has placed each of us into a unique sphere of influence to cultivate our part of his world and shine his light to those, those we encounter while he cultivates us. Whether we're leading a company in an exceeding un exceedingly uncomfortable place or creating the most perfect paperclip the world has ever seen, our work matters to God. And regardless of when the fruits of our labor impact this world, whether it's in the next 10 minutes or 150 years from now, our calling in ways both big and small and solely through him is to bring him our best in all things and be culture changers right where we are, to trust that he is in control and to glorify him while we are doing it. I'm just gonna do some cleanup up here. Uh, okay, just panic and run off. Uh, as we wrap up, and I am the last, so you don't have to settle in for any more. Phil, come on. Uh, he started clapping. Those jeans might be a little too tight. Um, as we wrap up and come to this time of, of reflection and response and communion, uh, Kendi did a great job giving us this uh, biblical perspective of how the Bible is talking about faith and work and how those two things can work uh, together. Uh, Bill and Katie did a great job giving some real tangible ways that our faith can be at, like, at work and, and be active uh, within what we do during the week. And as we head into the week, there's lots of things for us to, to think about. So I thought I would just distill it down by, uh, and provide three like, overarching categories about how we can express our lives or live out our faith uh, and the work that we do. So the first is this right attitude or attitude of quality of our work. So whether you're in work that, that makes a widget, that comes up with ideas, that articulates concepts for others to use further down the road in the work that they do, or you directly share knowledge or expertise with your constituents, one way that we incorporate faith into our work is by doing our job or our role with excellence. The initial and the ongoing way that we give examples of who Christ is, that we evangelize in our workplaces, is by doing work well. As we're made in God's image, and uh, as we are made in his image, so we should make things. Uh, and as God makes them with quality and thoughtfulness and intentionality, we're invited to do the same. We imitate, we point to God when we do our work well, when what we create is not only functional, but beautiful. And we've all seen the like beautiful spreadsheet, right? Like uh, spreadsheets, I think that's everybody's, the bane of everybody's existence. But then when you get one and you can actually make a decision based on the information, you're like, yes, thank you people. Uh, to have the right attitude of work and thinking about our work with quality and excellence first requires this inventory of what am I doing really well uh, 
do those things continuous, like continue to do those things? And where is there room for improvement? Uh, is it as Bill gave an example of that we're just kind of checked out and I shouldn't have to do this. There's some bitterness in our hearts of uh, I shouldn't have to. This isn't fair that I have to. I don't want to. And, and just kind of this overall lack of engagement. Are the places where we can improve in our quality just habits that we've created that maybe when we first started, we did them with excellence and enthusiasm. And now we're like, well, I do those all the time. I can just kind of phone it in. Uh, or does that change of habit require a change in your current work practices? Spending more time in preparation or inviting collaboration or just starting things sooner in general? Or is to do excellence, does it require more skill? Are you kind of at the top of your game in terms of where you are and you know that you could do better, but you don't know how to do it? And so how do you gain those skills? Because the first way that we share our faith in our work is by reflecting God's character of quality work and quality products. The second way that we can uh, incorporate our faith at work is inclusivity. Every work, every environment has these two hierarchies and two systems that are going. There's the first hierarchy that uh, oftentimes looks like an org chart. Maybe you were given to you in your hiring packet or at orientation. They explained to you how things ran. But then there's the second system that uh, it's not really officially explained explained or formed. It's not really printed anywhere or often, you know, not referred to at all, but it's very functional. Uh, it's what Leo Tolstoy calls the second or unwritten system. In this second system, there's no like formal invitations or you don't formally get kicked out of the group. Uh, but, but what really does clarify this group is that there's the, the insiders and the outsiders. The insiders use the language of we. So we've been talking, we've been thinking X, Y, and Z. Outsiders use the, the language of they. So they, yada, 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 so-and-so, and so-and-so, and their group says this, this department says this. It really is this break of inside and outside. It can be called a ton of things. Lewis articulates it as the inner ring. So that's, that's the way he says it. The layman's way of would be saying, this is the adult version of like the popular kids in high school. Uh, maybe the metrics are a little bit different. It's not what you wear, how much money you have, but it's you know, what the numbers that you bring in or how well do you code or how fast do you do something. But it's the same concept that has been happening our whole life. And it's a, a really dominant element of human life. Uh, it's the desire to be included, that we want to be on the inside, and this terror or this fear of being excluded, of, of not having value or meaning in a particular place. And we don't want to be left out onto the outside. And that's where the inner ring gets its power, is in exclusivity. That there are some who are in and some who are out. Maybe at your workplace, you know who these people are already. You're like, oh, I know it's so-and-so and so-and-so, and -so, or it's this department, and I don't want anything to do with them. Great. But there is another place in your work, in your life, that you either are a part of this inner ring or you really want to be part of the inner ring in, in some way. All of us uh, struggle with this, and all of us engage this. And one of the biggest challenges about the inner ring, and there are a lot of challenges about them, is that if the power of the ring is in, it, in its exclusivity, what will we do to either stay in the ring or to get into the ring, to get into that circle? 
Oftentimes, to stay there or to get there, we have to sacrifice others in some way. We push them out so there's more room for us. We uh, show ever so subtly how they're not appropriate for this sort of role or they're not fit for this candidacy in the same way that we are. And Lewis cautions that the, the passion of the inner ring is most skillful in making a person who's not a bad person do very bad things in order to be included ourselves and exclude others. Because exclusion is no accidental part of this inner ring, it's the essence of the inner ring. For me to be in means that other people have to be out. And there's really no end to the rings. All of us are a part of them in some way. And as soon as you're in one, especially that one you've been dying to get into, so you're there, look around, you're like, oh, that's the next one. That's where I need to go next. And once we see that next one, it will haunt us. It will call us to itself. And we'll never be satisfied because there's always another ring that we can be a part of. And we won't be satisfied. And instead, we'll have created this wake of exclusivity without any satisfaction in the actions that we've done. So according to Lewis, the only solution to get out of this cycle is to make doing the work well the goal. So kind of looping us back to number one. So he says, what's, what does it take to do the work well? If that means that to do the work well, I get to work with people who I love working with and who are really fun, great. I'm not doing it motivated to be in this inner circle. But if it works, uh, if it means working alongside those people who are super irritating, who are a little bit slower to speak or fast to speak or whatever, that that is a good sign that we're not doing it just for the sake of, of being inside or excluding others, but we're actually doing it to make good work. Because the phenomenon, phenomenon of the, the inner ring sneaks up on us. We don't ever like intentionally go, watch this, I'm gonna push these people out because hopefully we've all matured out of high school. Uh, but the inner ring, in order to keep people out, breaks community down. It makes the workplace an overall less great place to be, and it requires that we break others down in order to keep convincing other people that we should be a part of it. And this act ultimately moves us toward isolation and changes the way that we see and care for humankind, moving us to a place that accidentally we're the, the perpetrators of some pretty rough stuff that, that is not in Christ's name. So do good work, include everyone in doing the, the work well, and thirdly, think about what the big picture is that we're caring for. So in the Christian vernacular, the big picture uses the phrase human flourishing. So what are we contributing to human flourishing or this like ultimate picture that God has of creation, what God is calling us to. Dorothy Sayers says uh, that she really just wants humanity to learn the lesson that there are only two sources of real wealth. There's the fruit of the earth and the labor of humankind, that those are the only two things that we can really uh, be wealthy in. Bill mentioned that um, with his advanced age, uh, which <laughs> I will... Uh, Bill and I are very good friends, and uh, I might still pay for that later. But with his advanced age, um, that you'll see that the, there are some places that you have, uh, you've had impact, and you'll get feedback about that. Hey, this was really uh, significant to me. And there are other things that we know for sure, like I am doing this good thing right now, right? Like when I 
care for my child, this is a good thing. But then there's a bunch of stuff uh, that will take generations to come to fruition that we won't know in our lifetime how good it was or how it impacted folks down the road. And for those things that we don't yet see the impact of, Sayer suggests that we look at a few things. And she just has created this list of, if you're not sure, ask yourself these questions. So the list that she gives is she says, are we estimating work not by the money it brings to the producer, but by the worth of the thing to the world? Are we asking of an enterprise, not only will it pay, will we make money from it, but is it good? Asking of a person, not what does he or she make, but what does his or her work contribute to humankind? Of goods, not only can we convince people to buy them, but are they useful things well made? And of employment, not how much is it gonna make me, how much money am I gonna make, but will it exercise my abilities to the utmost? So when we're in these places of, I don't know whether this is a good thing or whether it's gonna impact, she gives us these questions to ask because we're trying to think as believers, what is my work right now? Is it making a difference? What am I doing? But then also, what am I doing down the road? How, how is what I'm doing contributing to the long run? As we come to the table in communion, I think Christ, through his uh, work on the cross, did, did that, right? He invested in today, thinking about tomorrow, but also bigger than that, it was inclusive to every aspect of our life. Uh, that it's not just that we would become Christians, but that he would redeem every area of our life, that we would be able to bring his redemption and to see him in every aspect. And for a lot of us, a, a big portion of our time is spent in work. Uh, the, if the servers could please come forward, uh, we get the chance here in this uh, act of, of, of Christ's sacrifice of his, his death, his resurrection uh, on the cross to acknowledge the sacrifice that, that he gave, the, um, the picture that he had of a redeemed future, but then also the power in his body, in his blood that we, we have in order to live out this redemption and in order to go into our workplaces and make a difference. It's through the power of Christ. Uh, the way that in this particular service we get to participate in in uh, communion is to, when you get the bread, to hold it. First uh, Corinthians tells us, as you're uh, interacting with communion, to take a beat and just reflect. Where is God calling you to bring some redemption into your workplace, to bring uh, hope into the places that you have uh, influence in? So, so think about that and then take the the cracker, and then at, we're going to hold the, the blood until the end, the, the juice, and, and do that together.